Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me, and today I've got, I wanna, I've been calling this a grab bag episode, but that's that's not flattering. It's an episode with variety, a bunch of different things going on here. It's all free, you're gonna like it, trust me. Uh, at the top, I've got a chat with Zach Weinberg. He's an entrepreneur who sold his first company for $80 million. He sold his second one for $2 billion. He's building something else right now. But that's not why you know him. You know him because he's on your Twitter or your TikTok or maybe your YouTube. Depancing crypto guys for fun, not for profit. He just goes on and debates Web3 advocates and so far remains, I think, undefeated. He's a really fascinating character. He's the kind of person the internet delivers to you, even though you didn't know you wanted it. Uh, we talk about why he's doing it, his actual issues and, and criticisms of, of Web3 and why he's doing this stuff for fun, even though it is literally not his day job. I think you will enjoy it. And then I've got two conversations I taped last week at the Collision Conference in Toronto. It's nice to see you guys. Thanks for saying hi. And I need to preface both of these conversations with a couple notes. Uh, the first conversation is with Substack CEO Chris Best. We talked about the evolution of his company and his product, and I asked him specifically what his life was going to be like, given that they had gone out to try to raise money and were unsuccessful, and New York Times had written about all that. Uh, and he answered me, but he did not tell me that he planned on laying off 14% of his company, which he did just today on Wednesday as I'm taping this. So keep that in mind as you hear him talk with me. Then I also talked with ABC News boss Kim Godwin who's been on the job for a year. And we talked about sort of the existential dilemma of trying to be a broadcast news operation when a significant chunk, maybe a significant minority of the country is not interested in, in news or facts, uh, or certainly hearing things that don't fit their worldview. We did talk about the uh, January 6th hearings that were going underway, but not the most explosive ones, which again, just happened. And we also talked a couple days before the Roe ruling from the Supreme Court, which is why you don't hear me asking her about coverage of that news. Okay, enough caveats. Let's get to conversations. Here's me and Zach Weinberg. I'm talking to Zach Weinberg. Zach, I want to do your, your career highlights real quick. You co-founded a company called Invite Media. That's an ad tech company. You sold to Google for around $80 million. Then you co-founded Flatiron Health. That's a health data company. Sold that for $1.9 billion. But that is not why you're on the Recode Media podcast. Why do you think you're on the Recode Media podcast? Yeah, I, you know, I assumed it was for my fun entrepreneurial activities. It turns out it's because I have turned into crypto. Is it Batman or Joker? I can't I would, which. I would say Batman. I would say you are, you are the well-off gentleman. I don't know if you're a bachelor or not. Who's, who's decided for fun to go around uh, beating people up. And in this case, you're beating up uh, crypto advocates. Uh, live on tape on something called the cartoon. Uh, was, was it? I just I just talked to Logan. What, what's the name of the podcast? Cartoon Avatars. Three, right? three cartoon avatars. Three yes. cartoon avatars podcast. I've ruined the entire intro. So in my tiny little corner of the internet, you are a breakout star the last 
couple months or so because over and over these guys advocating all the great things you could do crypto you could use crypto for come on the podcast and then you sort of tear them down i think it used to be called filching back in the in the old internet days what made you decide that I, you wanted to go on the internet and and debate crypto guys so to answer your question, I, I am married and have two kids. There you go. Uh, so there's no like late night going out for me anymore. So I've this replaced... is your late night going out. Yeah, exactly. I replaced it with crypto talks. You know, a little bit of the background. I, I after we sold Flatiron in 2018, uh, Nat, my co previous co-founder, and I started doing quite a bit of like active angel investing. So I've been a very very active early stage technology investor for a while, probably. 250, 300 investments over the course of the last 10 years. So I've been pitched, you know, every interesting technology idea from healthcare to enterprise software to consumer internet to crypto. And I think what had started to happen over time was just like continuing to see these crypto pitches, not to like critique anyone entrepreneur, because I think, you know, there's always some there's good ideas and bad ideas out there at all times. But there was a consistency in the crypto stories that the hype and the details did not align in a way that I think we were holding the regular, simple software companies to like a much higher standard than we were for the crypto ones. I didn't really understand why and what was going on because usually we're pretty good at saying this feels like a real business and this one doesn't. And that tends to play out, maybe not in every company, but on average. And here we were saying no to a bunch of crypto companies because none of it made any logical sense. And then they were going off and raising a whole bunch of money and in particular issuing these kind of like speculative coins. And it didn't sit right in my head. Like this was, is the last year or so, sort of there was a crescendo of this stuff. Yeah, really over the last two years, it was uh -huh. just seeing more and more of these startups. And so I got interested in it because I was confused. Like in all honesty, I was confused. I consider myself like a reasonably good early stage tech investor and I did not understand what was going on. So you were like a lot of people saying, I don't understand this. These people all seem convinced of it. Some of them seem smart. What am I missing? Totally. And so a lot of the use cases I was being pitched in particular were like financial in nature, whether they were lending or borrowing, you know, anything in that sort. So I just started talking to folks that I knew deep in the finance industry who really understood how the world works, right? How do we actually like issue a mortgage and what does lending mean? And who and just understanding like what's going on here. And then I would pitch them some of the pitches I had heard. And you know, they would laugh. They would laugh at me saying like, this is the most ridiculous thing. Like whoever's pitching this to you has absolutely no idea how like the real world works. And that's how I got interested in it because I saw this dichotomy. And I was, do to be clear, I was doing this all for fun. This wasn't like to make money. <laughs> and that's the story. I just got interested in it because it felt wrong. Like something about this was wrong. So you've educated yourself and basically you seem to reach the conclusion that you can't find any use cases for crypto beyond speculation and investment. I think there, you know, nothing is binary. It's hard uh -huh. to say there's zero. I would say the hype factor relative to the reality factor was off by like a thousand X that there were some weird little edge case things where like an immutable public database was actually required and it kind of made sense. And, you know, we can go through a few of them every so often, but versus the hype and the amount of like venture and LP dollars that were making their way into the space, it was totally out of whack. 
and it it just it was it wasn't something I was planning on doing to be very clear. And I actually recorded these initial podcasts without really knowing that this was going to be a thing. It was just like Logan, who I thought was funny, invited me on the podcast, and I said, "All right, yeah, happy to go on." Like, who do you have as the guest? And it happened to be that the first two guests were crypto guests. It was totally by chance. It has absolutely it was not a planned thing. Your your breakout moment was a guy named Packy McCormick who is one of the most, had been, I think still is, one of the most prominent Web3 advocates, younger guys. He's, he's a, basically a Web3 marketer. And the way he describes it, you sort of, well, who knows? He, he he's, he's now said, well, I felt bad about my performance, but it, it kind of broke out. Did you feel as you were discussing this with him and sort of basically depancing him on the internet that this was a breakout moment? Did you understand that people were going to respond to this? No. No. Like and, zero chance. And when and when did it occur to you that oh people are responding to this? When somebody apparently posted this like six or seven minute clip about the mortgage thing, which let me be very clear, but I forgot I did that. Like I've had these conversations before about mortgages, and I've had a debate with people, and like somebody's walked me through that example. That's when when he said it, I was like, all right, I know this example because I've tried to work through this before, and I know it doesn't work, and I kind of forgot it happened because I'd had that conversation a few times. And even after we released the podcast, funny enough, it, you know, some people listen, it's not that popular of a podcast, Logan's not that funny, you know, stuff like that. And then somebody clipped it and off it went. And I, you know, at that point I was like, oh, I guess people are going to see this. And that was the impetus. And so you're doing a lot of this now. Now it's kind of this like arena thing where, where a crypto guy comes in to debate you and you take them on. I'm assuming this is not going to be a full-time job for you. No, let me be very clear about what I'm actually doing because I don't want my like current investors to be scared. Every so often, I spend 60 minutes to 90 minutes, usually at night, mm-hmm. talking on a podcast. I spend four to five minutes preparing by like reading some notes and some news. I talk and then I hope I didn't say anything stupid. You're a podcaster. Congrats. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And that's that's it. I have like a real day job and I do nothing related to crypto. I work in biotech now. I have like a whole new biotech startup. We do startup invest. It's not crypto related. This is like a fun little hobby because I find it, you know, interesting to debate people about this stuff. So I had Molly White on, who's also a, a crypto skeptic uh, recently. She's got a different vibe than you. But I think that the commonality is that both of you know your way around technology to some degree, more than a lot of other listeners. You feel confident about what you're saying. And I think one of the frustrating things for a lot of people like myself over the last year plus of watching people promote crypto is there's some obvious grifters. There's people who are obviously trying to steal your money. And there are other people like Mark Andreessen, who at a minimum helped bring us the internet, right? Help build the web browser. He seems committed to this. He's already very wealthy. Maybe he wants to be that much wealthier, but he seems really committed to this, intellectually excited by it. And it's hard to sort of argue with him because again, he helped build the internet. And I think someone like you is particularly interesting because you now have built and sold a couple companies, at least you're an investor. So you know your way around this as well. And you are in some ways sort of standing in for a lot of us who go, this doesn't seem right, but I can't argue with some of these guys in the way that Zach can. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think it takes a little bit of not being scared of the engineers talking technology at you because you you have to understand a little bit about how this works. And then having seen enough startup pitches to know, you know, what passes the sniff test and what doesn't. And yeah, I've definitely done those things. I think in a sense, what's happening is like, we have engineering type backgrounds, myself included by, by the way, I mean, most of what I've done is work on, on software kind of discovering how speculation works, 
for the first time. Because most of the time what happens in software is you build your product and then you claw your way bit by bit, year by year, to maybe having some customers who are excited about what you do. And it is a brutal slog where you get so many things wrong. And so, you know, it's a giant pain in the ass. And this is why being an entrepreneur is generally hard. And then what happens here, not because I think it was planned, but I think because of the dynamics of these tokens or coins, essentially, is people said, oh, I've got this like whole new engineering thing. And oh, by the way, you can buy and sell it. And to an engineer, that's just like another feature in, you know, in the pocketbook here. It's not like a financialization thing. That's just like a feature in the software. Turns out it's actually just like a giant speculation exercise. And I think most product and engineering people have never seen this before. They've never seen the pink sheets. They've never seen the like financial scams out there. So they're just unaware that the use here is a speculative use based on running up the value of the coins and getting out. It's not real users. It's not real long-term consistent customers. And we've just never seen that before in technology. We've convinced ourselves that this is like some technology innovation, when in reality, all it is is the technology version of speculation. So I do know some older folks, meaning they're 50-ish like me, and they were around for Web 1.0. They're in tech now. Um, some of them are professional investors. They're very excited. They were at least very excited about this. Obviously, they wanted to make money, but they really thought this was new and exciting and a chance to build new things. And to them, it felt like Web 1.0. Are they totally missing something? Or could there be some germ of a thing? And and one of the things you hear a lot is, all right, we're going to have a crash. It's going to wipe out all the bad companies and we're going to get left with an Amazon or a Google like we did after the first web bubble. Look, it's very cool technology. It really is, right? And I think that you have to kind of stop for a second, even as a skeptic of these businesses and say, yeah, it's pretty cool to be able to have this like immutable public ledger. Like, let's be clear about what it, it really is, right? It's a public ledger, so no one company controls it. That is immutable, meaning once something happens on that ledger, like it can't be reversed or changed. And that was a science, computer science problem that people had talked about for a while and had never really been able to solve without having a trusted third party. Like, to be clear, public databases have existed for like 40 years, right? That The idea that there's some public record uh, of a common set of information is not new in any way, shape, or form. It's the idea that it's not controlled by one entity that Which is, is appealing to a lot of people intellectually, right? Or, and maybe like, yeah. you know, and almost maybe theologically, like, wouldn't this be cool if the man didn't control this? It's almost like a religious type mm -hmm. of belief of like, this is really cool that I don't have to rely on some entity, government, yep. company, middleman, whatever. And that feels very interesting intellectually. And I think it is really interesting intellectually. Unfortunately, I don't believe it translates to any material amount of interesting use cases. And I would actually take it a step further. It's just to say in some of these use cases, it's actually materially worse, right? This idea that there's no middleman in a financial transaction People look at it like, oh, we're going to cut out the middlemen. And it turns out middlemen are there for a reason. And what this enables is like scams on a whole different scale that we've never seen before. It used to be hard to scam people. You needed paper. You needed to meet them. You have to get the money out. Like when you scam somebody by like selling some item that they, you know, someone else owned that you didn't own, you had to get the money out. You had to go through the banking system. There were a lot of like checks and balances to make sure that your scam didn't work. Uh, that doesn't exist here.
various crypto prices have crashed. There's a lot of negativity. There's one argument that says, well, this is just a cycle. It's going to come back. And other folks say that no, we're just good riddance. We're done with this stuff. Assuming this stuff bubbles back up at some point and the, the people who say this is a cycle and it comes back and in some period of time, we're going to hear a new wave of crypto pitches. If you are not a professional technologist who sold your companies for a bunch of money and you're trying to evaluate this stuff, what's the best way for a curious, you know, smart, smartish, regular person to evaluate this? So I would say there's probably three things. There's more, but let's start with the three basics. One is... Does the person in front of you actually understand how this works today? If you're going to tell me you're going to put a mortgage or a piece of physical art or whatever on the blockchain, let's leave the blockchain out of it for a second. How does it work right now? Can you explain to me in absolute detail what is going on in today's market? And 99 out of 100 times, they can't because it's a very high level understanding of how the current world works and what the risks are and who the players are. But just like, how does it work right now? Forget the blockchain for a second. And the second thing is just remove the word crypto and blockchain and like all the stuff for, from your head. And I would ask, why is a immutable public database better? Like what about the specific idea that we have this non-centrally controlled public database that makes this better than the current version? What is it about the idea that there isn't some central entity that, you know, the records can't be reversed? What about that is the core piece of value here? Because that's really what we're saying at the end of the day. Why is this better than a computer? Why is this better than a credit card? Those have been my go-tos, basically. Better than a credit card. Why is it better than, you know, a multi-billion dollar company who spends $400 million building this awesome game like, why is a decentralized game better than Halo, right? What about it makes it better? Why is it better? And who is it better to, right? To whom, if you will, which is just like product management 101, just like understanding why the thing you're building is actually better for the customer. Who is the customer? How many of them are there? Things like that. The third one, this is a little more subtle. And I always like to ask people this. First of all, if there's a coin involved, let's just start with that for a second. If there's some sort of like coin that you're issuing, some token, whatnot. If that coin never goes up in value, is the equity in the company worth anything and why? What are we investing in, right? Are we investing in the company that's supposed to like have a profitable business model and, you know, make money eventually and actually distribute those cash gains to its shareholders, which is what a normal business looks like. And that's how you invest. Or is it really just a giant kind of push to speculate on the coins and the returns from come from the coins. And I think people are slowly waking up to what's going on here, which is in many cases, the bull case for a lot of these companies is the coin speculation. It has absolutely nothing to do with this company actually making real long-term profitable dollars from its core business. And I think that is like slowly becoming a little bit more mainstream in its understanding. So where does the money come from? I could do this for a lot longer. I promised you you'd be out in 15 minutes, and I think we're at 18. So here's the last question, because we both got to go. You going to keep doing this, or are you bored with it already? <laughs> this is going to sound so weird. I really like doing this kind of debate and discussion because it's so different from what I actually do every single day that it allows me to kind of like clear my head talk about crypto or tech for an hour or two hours every week, and then go back to working on complicated science stuff. And for me, it's it's like, you know, people go for a walk, 
they play basketball, they, I don't know, whatever, they read a book, getting on for an hour or two and debating, you know, the financialization of software, whatever it is we're talking about is like an interesting way for me to take a break. Okay. At a minimum, it's a harmless hobby and maybe you're doing yeah, some good. Yeah, it's a harmless hobby. Maybe I do some good. Maybe I don't. Uh, it's fun. Uh, I'm definitely not doing it for the press. Let me tell you, like, if anything, I think this is probably negatively affecting my core business. People are like, what are you doing? <laughs> People in biotech are like, what are you doing? Like, why are you talking about crypto? And I just do it because it's fun, not because it's actually helping me in any way, shape or form. All right. Well, as a member of the press, thank you for talking to me. Zach Weinberg, we will see you on the internet. Thanks, man. Thanks again to Zach Weinberg for coming on late at night to do that conversation. Uh, in a minute, we're going to hear from Chris Best from Substack. But first, a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Chris, good job on picking the right seat. We're just reminiscing. I remember talking to you guys in the fall of 2017 when you launched the company. Um, and at the time, the idea that you were going to provide a toolkit for people who wanted to create and maybe sell their own newsletters seemed like an interesting idea, but a small one. Didn't seem like a lot of people would want to take advantage of it. So catch, catch me up. Where are you guys now? How many people are using the platform? How many people are making money on the platform? Yeah, so it's been a few years. Um, we've got over a million paid subscribers on the platform. A million paid subscribers. A million paid subscribers as of late last year. And the thing's kind of going. I'd say it's working. It's working. People are, especially who do what I do, are exceptionally curious about who, how many people are able to make a living selling newsletters on, on the service. There's some very high profile people who've made a lot of money. Um, what's the sort of overall universe, people who are making meaningful or enough money to support themselves? on Substack? I think the top 10 people on the platform make about $20 million a year between them. Top 10 people. Top 10 people. So it's sort of, it's fairly power law as you'd expect. Um, part of what we do is we make it as easy as possible for anybody to start their own Substack. Um, so if you're thinking about starting a Substack, you should start one, it's very easy. Um, and part of what that means is a lot of people start it and just kind of like never publish again or use it a little bit. So there's sort of this, incredibly long tail where lots and lots of people can start whenever they want. And then for some people, it takes and it grows and it becomes something that can turn into real side money, sometimes even, you know, something that can put a full time focus into or something that makes them quite rich. Sometimes it's the people that you would expect. Sometimes it's, I think people sometimes have the impression that the people that they think they see in the news as being on Substack is representative of, of success on Substack. But there's also people that weren't professional writers before who come to be successful on Substack, which is one of the things that makes us the most excited. So you won't tell me how many people make a living on Substack? No, I don't no. know. Okay, but, but enough to make it worthwhile. For, we should do a poll here. Who here is writing a Substack? You can raise your hand. I thought I'd see more. Okay, you got a bunch of Substack users. Oh man, there's hands. Who here That's is subscribing? Thrill. Who's paying money for someone's Substack? 
bigger group. Me too. Okay. Are you where you thought you'd be nearly five years later? Is this surprise you that the, the growth of the platform? Is this sort of what you projected? I've always been kind of bifurcated on this. On the one hand, I've always believed that this thing could be something truly enormous because I think we're tapping at the root of something that's a, a real shift in how people want to create and consume culture. And always along the way, I've been like, this is ridiculous. We're doing this, this thing. It's never going to work. No one's yep. ever going to care about it. And so far, I think we're sort of following the path of the former. We're doing the thing that in my wildest hopes, I thought we might be able to do. So I talked to people who use the platform. Again, I have a personal interest in how that's going as, as someone who might want to have a Substack one day and also just as a reporter. A lot of them say, you know something you guys did this year that has really been amazing for their personal Substack is you've added recommendations at the end of the Substack. And it's exactly what it sounds like, right? You finish someone's newsletter and then you guys say, hey, here's three other newsletters similar to this or we think you might like. The writer sets those. The writer sets the recommendation. The writer picks them? The writer picks okay. them. So that sounds, and they'd say, this has really helped my Substack grow. It's really a game changer. So on the one hand, that's great. On the other hand, it seems like, wow, you guys could have figured that out from, from day one. Now, <laughs> you're, you're running the company, I'm not. So why does it take you that long to, to implement what seems like a really sort of straightforward idea? Totally fair question. And I think part of the answer probably is, we should have figured that out sooner. It's really good, it's working really well. In our defense, or the thing that's maybe not straightforward about it is, our ambition with Substack is to bring the benefit of a network and the power of being a part of this thing that's, that's bigger than you could be a part of on your own, right? If we're charging 10% of your fees, we want to bring you more, we want to give you more than we're asking for in return, which means having this effective cross-promotion of working together, of benefiting from the other people there. At the same time though, we believe in putting writers and readers in charge. And so the simplest possible version of that feature wouldn't be what we ended up shipping. It would be like, hey, you came for one thing, like here's some other stuff we think you'll click on. Here's some other stuff that our algorithm thinks would help with growth. And like, don't worry about what the reader wants or what the writer wants. And for us, that's sort of in opposition to the thing that we're fundamentally trying to do. We want to bring the power of a network without recreating kind of the attention monster dynamics that rule other media platforms. And the reason the best writers in the world come to Substack is because we live up to their, our promise of putting them in charge. And so finding the right way to have both of those, both the power of a network and the control, because what you're subscribing to in Substack is somebody that you trust, it's not completely trivial. So prior to adding recommendations, the way a lot of people who I know who have Substacks found other readers was they either asked their readers to share it or they went on Twitter and if you had a big Twitter following and you guys use Twitter to sort of evaluate sort of how fervent a following someone had. But they also said, you know, once you sort of get through your initial sets of tweets, everyone who's read your tweets has decided whether or not they want to subscribe. They're kind of out of options. How are you thinking about getting your users out to a larger audience? One interesting thing about the Twitter thing, we do see a lot of people effectively using Twitter. Something we see for some of the most successful writers is that their social media followings, including Twitter, will start to grow a lot faster once their Substack is working. 
because there's this thing that's raising their profile, it's introducing more people, there might be a case of, I, I came in with this many followers, I sold them all in the newsletter, and then the rest of them are gonna come, but then if my, if my profile and my follower count is growing, there can be sort of like a positive back and forth effect there. So you don't hit a limit. The problem that creates for us though is a big part of why we think Substack is important is not just something that, that can work for people, but that it matters to the world, is that it creates a real alternative to the attention monster games that happen on networks like Twitter, right? We want to tell writers, you shouldn't be totally at the mercy of the way that you have to be on Twitter to yep. get attention. And there's a little bit of tension there with us where it's like, if that's the main way you grow or if that's the only way you grow, that kind of belies that, right? If we're this great thing, but we're downstream from the sewage factory of Twitter, that's actually not great. And so things like recommendations, where we're allowing for within Substack where the writers are in charge to get new audience is very important to us. Speaking of Twitter, um, they went out and acquired a Substack competitor clone called Review. Facebook has launched their own version called Bulletin. They're apparently going to expand that. I don't know if that's public, maybe I just broke news. And then there are, there's something called Ghost, which is a, a basically a nonprofit open source version of, of that. So you went and created this space that no one had been, no one had been in the space before. Now you have a bunch of competitors. How is that affecting your business? The way I think of this is that the only thing worse than getting copied is not getting copied. I sort of think that- I think you've used that line before probably. I have used that line before. I, I believe it. It's something that I, I think is true. Because there's not a successful, there's not a path where Substack becomes very successful, where other startups don't try and copy it, where Twitter and Facebook take loving inspiration from it. And the bulletin stuff is funny because we, we've seen them, you know how the map makers used to put errors in the maps and they would, you copy the error, you could tell they were copying your thing. It's very clear that bulletin is directly copied from Substack in a bunch of places. It's the highest form of flattery. But practically, so Ghost, one big advantage there is basically there's no fees, so they're not 10% versus zero. And then something like Facebook, and we've had these discussions, the money means nothing to them, so they can throw what seems like to you a ton of money at a Malcolm Gladwell or whomever and say, we're gonna give you a bunch of money, just try it out. Um, it's more money, presumably, than you could offer. So how do you think about getting outbid by a platform on either end of the spectrum, either on the margin or on the advance? I think there's a lot that Substack can offer, especially the best writers. Um, I think that there's a, a selection effect where the people who are looking for a way to get a bit of money can take an advance from Bulletin and that's great for them and I'm thrilled that we're helping create that, <laughs> helping in, inspire that opportunity for them. But the people who want to build something for themselves, Substack is a better platform. You'll grow more, you have all of the power of the network, and I think there's a reason why the best writers are here. You guys um, generate a lot of attention. <laughs> That's a nice way to put that. Because you're in the media business. Um, and the media likes writing about media. Uh, the most recent headline generated was you guys going out trying to raise money, apparently not getting the, either the money you wanted or the valuation you wanted. And then so you had your finances dumped out publicly in the New York Times. First, what's it like to have your revenue and fundraising <laughs> splashed across the New York Times? I love that the New York Times and other people pay as much attention to us as they do. It's uncomfortable at times, but you get used to it. And I think on the whole, it is, it's, it's good. It's, it's good that, as you say, probably have people obsess about us more than they should, 
given whatever our size and scale. I think it's fine. I'm kind of like, it's, it's good that people care. I'm glad that Substack's top of mind. And then practically you went out, wanted to get money, didn't get money. We're now entering what could be a recession or a pullback and every VC firm is telling all the startups, hey, you better make sure you got 20 months of runway, 24 months of runway, whatever it is, winter's coming, winter's here. What does that mean for you guys? How are you changing or not changing the way you're running your company? Yeah, I mean, I think this is not this is not really a Substack story. This is a, a market-wide story. Yeah, but you're the story. one on stage. What's that? But you're the one on stage. Yeah, so. I'm the one on stage. You know, it's going to be hard for us, like it's going to be hard for everybody. I think this these kinds of pullbacks are irrational, creates a lot of heartache. It's tough. You have to make hard decisions. That's absolutely going to be the case case with us. That said, I think we're in a pretty strong position. Uh, fortunate position compared to many other people. We still have a bunch of money in the bank. We're still growing. We have a great team. We have a business model that actually makes economic sense as it scales. So I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to shift how we operate, but it's not going to fundamentally change what we're doing. I'm not an economist or an economic prognosticator. The way people are talking to the economy is a little funky because it doesn't seem like consumers have slowed down their spending. Seems natural that at some point you'll look at your 401k and go, I'm down 40%. And regardless of the fact that you're still up a lot over the last 10 years, you'll, you'll be less likely to spend money. You guys are a subscription business only right now. Are you seeing any signs that people are less willing to pay for a Substack subscription? We're not seeing any signs of that yet, but I do think it's something we will watch closely for. I mean, not just now, but throughout history, one of the top reasons people cancel their paid subscriptions is because something changes in their life, they lose their job or their circumstances yep. change, and they just can't afford it anymore. Uh, and so I definitely think if there's sort of a wide scale effect that's causing a lot of people to have to trim things, their Substack subscriptions could easily be part of that. On the other hand, I also think there's an effect where in uncertain times and when there's sort of like things happening in the world that are affecting our lives, people are hungry for good writing, good news, good opinion, good analysis. Um, so I think there's sort of like, it remains to be seen what the net effect of all that is. Do you poll uh, subscribers? Do you, do you interview them? Do you do market research? Do you have a sense of, do they view the money they're spending on Substack as part of their news diet? So you're in the bucket that goes into the New York Times or The Athletic, which now the same thing. Are they just part of money they spend? So you're up with Netflix and Spotify and cable TV or going out to dinner. What, how does the con Substack consumer think of the money they're spending? That's a great question. You're I don't up. know if I have a perfect, a perfect answer for that. And are you guys contemplating like, look, we might want to change either what we take from our, our contributors to make it more sustainable for them, if things are going to slow down, or maybe we should play around with pricing? I don't think we need, the, the model fundamentally works. One thing that's interesting is, should writers be raising their prices? And I think the answer to that is maybe. And in fact, one of the reasons Substack works at all, this is kind of a funny story, when we first started, we let the writers set their price because we think writers should be in charge, so you should be able to set whatever price you want. And then a lot of the people we were talking to would come and say, I think I'll charge 25 cents a month. And we just had to be like, you can't charge 25 cents a month, that's not gonna work for you. And so we set a minimum price of $5 a month uh, on the platform. And in a way it gave people sort of license to charge that much, they could blame us, they could say, oh, Substack, these bad guys are making me charge this, but you know, up. And that actually helped a lot of people get to the place that they need to be. It'd be interesting to know if people should be raising their prices and how we can help with that, I think. 
So we have had this discussion a bunch over the last couple of years. You guys have generated a reputation, sometimes unwillingly, and sometimes I think you've leaned into it, as being a place where you are deliberately seeking out controversial writers, where you want writers who feel like this is a space where they can write whatever they want that wasn't available somewhere else. And often some of the most successful ones, the most prominent ones are right-leaning. There's been uh, calls for you to moderate what they're doing. You say, we're not going to do it. Um, first of all, have you reconsidered any of your moderation, non-moderation principles that you've exposed or espoused over the last year or so? No, I wouldn't say so. I kind of have two opinions here that animate my thoughts on this. One is I just, I believe in freedom of the press. We believe in freedom of the press. We think that it's a fundamental necessity in a free society. And that to the extent that Substack can help contribute to that, we think it's just, it's doing good in the world. And there's a bit of a selfish thing where writers who are independent minded are often more interesting, right? The writers that end up being controversial or end up having things that not every, like writing things that not everybody agrees with all the time is a sign of somebody that has something to say. And I think that's good. So you guys, the, you have people like, I'm going to mess her name up, is this Heather Cox Richardson? Heather Cox Richardson. So is she still your most successful Substacker? I think so, yeah. One She's definitely up there. She interviewed you the president a few is? weeks ago. So she writes pretty apolitical, maybe a little left-leaning. I mean, history. super mainstream liberal, yeah, super mainstream. I would say. And then there's a roster of well-known people who are on the right side of the spectrum, who generate a lot of attention or generate a lot of money. Glenn Greenwald, Barry White, I mean, Andrew Sullivan. It, yeah, is, is Glenn Greenwald on the right? Is Matt Taibbi on the right? It's, yeah. With some of these people, it becomes interesting to even, it's unclear, I would say. So that, all right. So, but you have that reputation at various times that seems like that's concerned you. You want to go out of your way to highlight other kind of writers. Other times uh, when Elon Musk first announced that he was going to buy Twitter and that his big thing was to get rid of moderation, one of your comms people sent out a cheeky tweet basically telling Twitter people who are upset about that not to come work at Substack. Funny, it's good. Do you want to be seen as like, do you want to be ecumenical where you're deliberately spreading this out as widely as possible as across the ideological spectrum? Or do you not care? If it turns out that your most successful writers are on the right side of the spectrum, are you fine with that? I definitely think we want to be and are very ecumenical. I think we're at the scale now where if you're looking for some slice of thing on Substack, you can find it. And there's, I think that is a, a necessary result of having kind of an index fund of culture. And I imagine that when, if people see a diff from what they see in the rest of the media, that that stands out as like, oh, this is a special thing about Substack. I think in large part, it's just an effect of us having some of everything and people being surprised at some things they haven't seen elsewhere. I think it would be too bad and something for us to avoid is becoming pigeonholed into any one thing. There are such a variety of people succeeding on Substack across not just across the political spectrum, but across like different topics, not just politics, it's religion, it's food, it's local news. There's like a, there's so many different things that there's not one thing that Substack is for. One of the reasons this spiked up most recently, well, it's probably a year now, um, was because you guys did introduce what you call your pro program. It's basically you're giving advances to writers you think would do well on the platform, but as an incentive for them to leave their job or at least spend time doing that. Is that working out the way you want? Will you expand it or maybe, maybe have to pull back on that? I think we're still figuring out what to do there. There's definitely been a lot of great stuff that's come from it, but it's never been 
it's, it's another piece that's been very outsized in people's understanding of Substack. It's never been a major part of our growth. Most of the writers on Substack just take the normal just deal. Showed just showed up. Or, or, or that we recruited, but the normal Substack deal is very good. And even the pro stuff, everyone ends up on the normal Substack deal. Um, so I think it's not, it's not as big a deal as, as it seems to loom in people's imaginations. Yeah, you hear money and then you hear, oh, Barry Weiss is making $800,000 and everyone loses their mind. Fair uh, enough. I'm all for my former colleague, Matt Iglesias, making a lot of money. I've got, I'm all for writers making a lot of money, so thank Amen. you. Amen. And podcasters, you guys have added podcasts to something you said was on your roadmap, now it's out. The difference between a Substack podcast and one that I download from Apple or Spotify is what? Um, you can pay for it, you can get people's emails, you can have your personal media empire that also has writing, also has other things. It's very good. You should podcast on Substack. Okay. Video, what else is coming? You do new video? Video is in beta. We've got a mobile app now. If you haven't tried the Substack app for iPhone, you should get it. It's wonderful. Why would I use the Substack app instead of having it delivered into my inbox? Yeah, it's, a nice, it's a nice, beautiful reading experience. I could. But there's a benefit to you guys, right? You would like me to use the app. It's better for you if I'm aggregated in the app. I think it's, yeah, I think it's better for everyone. Okay. It's this has been a good interview, I think. <laughs> it's hard for me to hear half of what you're saying. Are you guys able to hear, Chris? Okay, good. I just wanted to make sure. Chris Best from Substack, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks again to Chris Best. Now here's Kim Godwin, the head of ABC News. Kim Godwin, thanks for joining us. Ah, great to be here. You were telling me backstage, this is your first real interview. Yes, You've been on the job for a year. Yeah, and I have you. You got me, sorry. Yeah, no, it's all right. <laughs> it's all good, all good. So you've been on the job for a year. Yeah. We won't have time to talk about all of it. I want to just start with what's happening now in news, which is the January 6th hearings. I think we're four hearings out of six in. You guys have televised all of them on ABC. What were you expecting in terms of viewership and impact from those hearings? And what, are, what feedback are you getting from your viewers? Are they watching? Do they believe what they're seeing? Well, first of all, you I have to say that's not why we do it, right, is to uh, see if people believe what they're seeing, that kind of thing. However, really important to us at ABC to show our government at work unfiltered, right? We're straightforward. You see it for yourself. You can decide whether you believe it, whether you don't. Um, we do have polling that just came out this week, ABC Ipsos polling, that shows that 60% of Americans think that after watching the hearings, the four that um, have happened, that they are impartial and fair. That's up from 40% um, a couple of months ago. So that shows a little bit of impact. That people have watched it and said, oh, it's Yeah, okay. it's, it's impartial and fair, right? Um, and then there's 63% uh, of the people who um, say that, independents, who say that um, President Trump should face criminal charges after watching, that's up a little bit from 56%. But again, the whole idea is for people to just see it and decide for themselves. And this is an extraordinary thing. We haven't had hearings like this, especially multi-day ones right. about something right. like this. I saw a poll that said 60% of register viewers expressed some familiarity. They'd seen some minute or something of it. Um, how is it performing just as, as in terms of audience for you? Are people tuning in? Would they rather watch something else? No, I mean, we're not getting complaints. No one's calling and saying, turn this off, you know, that kind of thing. In fact, many people are calling and saying, thank you for, for doing it. Um, our affiliates across the country demand it. You know, we are a news brand. ABC News is the number one network in the country. And so 
that's what we do, and that's what they expect us to do, uh, and so we're leaning into it. Again, it's really important to us to, to, to show as much as we can unfiltered to the American people when this kind of thing happens. Now, I will say, prime time was something that we were like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know. Wait a minute, are we ready to hand over a big swath yes, of our programming, yes, a very yes. valuable programming time yes, to news? To, well, and it's not just to news, to our, you know, to a government hearing. Like, <laughs> why do you have to have it in prime time? However, you know, we came to the conclusion, okay, if you're going to do it, we will absolutely show it because the American people need to see. The hearings to me highlight something we've all been grappling with since 2016, maybe it extends beyond that, that there's at least two versions of reality in America. Or another way of putting it, there's a big swath of the country that literally doesn't believe things that are objectively true, things they can see with their own eyes if they're told by the Republican Party or Donald Trump that it's not true. And news organizations have been grappling with how to handle this, this cleavage, right? There's the reality-based audience and there's a non-reality-based audience. How do you think about whether or not you should try to be reaching people who don't believe what they're seeing, who don't, who believe that the hearings are made up, who believe that, you know, we can go on and on and on, who, who aren't accepting sort of objective reality? Do you say, we can't reach them, that's it? Or do you go out of your way to say, no, we do want to bring those people in? We definitely want to um, bring those people in. I think about that in two ways. One, we can't cede the space, right, to misinformation, disinformation, um, those who are not dealing in reality. So I feel like that is the first driver of why we should do it. You just can't cede the space. We have to, you know, show what's true. Again, unfiltered as much as possible, um, that kind of thing. So that's, that's one. It's, it's really important that we are there. Now, whether we can reach other people, I don't know. But uh, again, uh, we should be there and we should try. And speaking of that, I, I just think in general, we need to do a better job in, in, uh, in the news media in educating people about being smart consumers of news. And I really think that it needs to start younger, um, you know, as young as 10, 11, 12 years old, where people can learn how to be critical thinkers and, of news, you know, and how to consume it and how to compare and why you shouldn't just watch one thing, not even ABC News. Now, I would say if you want to watch one thing, watch ABC News, but you should watch several networks. You should read several newspapers. You should have several sources of information and sort of see how it aligns for you. And then you are better informed as an American to make decisions. We are increasingly in a world of, of fractured media, niche media, where people seek out news that fits their views. Right. Um, this has been Echo going chamber. on for a long time. Yeah. You're on a broadcast network. By definition, you're supposed to reach a large swath of people. Does that fracturing put more pressure on you to sort of be extremely even-handed and, and ask for comment even when the person who's commenting is not telling the truth or you say... Well, you, you tell me. I mean, does, do you think of a special obligation given that you're broadcast and you're supposed to be reaching sort of right down the middle? Yeah, I, I, you know, ABC News' brand is straightforward. So we absolutely, that's the foundation of what we do. Straightforward. We're trying to get both sides. We're trying to make sure we're asking questions that represent both sides of the aisle, that kind of thing, right? But then we, we also need to make sure that we understand understand where other people are coming from, right? So I think we've got to do a better job of getting into the middle of the country. I have a big push to get our more reporters 
who live in the middle of the country. That's coming up for ABC News. I think we're too bi-coastal. And I think, you know, the, the last election proved to us that that's something that we heard, was not... We yes. heard a lot about that yes, in 2016. Exactly. Oh, we should that go venture not, out in the middle of the yes, country. Yes. And, and then they stopped talking about that. But you think that no, that should still be happening. No, I think that's really important, especially as we are moving now toward midterms and another presidential election, that we really have to be in touch with people in the middle of the country as well. So either in the midterms and or in the upcoming presidential election, there's a reasonable chance mm -hmm. that in one or more elections, a Democrat is going to win. You and other news organizations will call that for the Democrat. And there's going to be a replay of what we had in 2020, except there'll be even more s structure and force behind the efforts to say, no, that's l not legitimate. That's a lie. That's not true. Have you thought about how you are going to report and message that reporting if that scenario happens. Listen, I think that's part of why we're doing these January 6th hearings live. You know, as much information that we can give people, as much access to the government at work that they can see unfiltered, I think we have a better shot at that. Um, we're very careful about how we position and talk about, you know, both sides of an issue making sure that we attribute, you know, and that we say, on the other hand, I think that's what people come to us for, actually, because most of us, you know, by the time World News Tonight comes on, everybody's seen the headlines, right? So they come to us for context and perspective, and it's really important to us to give it to them in a measured, even way. And, uh, you know, again, when you have more reporters out in the middle of the country, you get better questions from the middle of the country to bubble up as part of our reporting and coverage. You gave me a nice segue here. So the broadcast, the nightly broadcast is still sort of your crown jewel. As everyone here in this room knows, traditional TV ratings and viewership are going down, down, down. That audience is scattering. They're going all over the place. So how do you think about the role of the traditional nightly broadcast? What is the audience you're reaching? What audience would you like to reach? And, and what's the point of that broadcast? Presumably people have access to news throughout the day. Well, I think the landscape period is, is changing, right? So World News Tonight, I mentioned that. Let's start with Good Morning America, number one morning show, 10 years and running. Okay, so that's where we start the day. World News Tonight, for the last 10 weeks, I'll give you just an example is the number one show on broadcasting cable, period, outside of sports. So outside of a big, you know, the NBA games mm -hmm. or whatever, World News Tonight with David Muir is the number one show on broadcasting cable. So the appetite is there. But, what, but who Wait, is I'm that? I'm going to get to okay. it. So, so the pie, right, the linear pie is shrinking, but a lot of people are still hungry, right, for that linear pie. So we have, you know, people in, the, in their 60s, that's the average age of someone watching World News Tonight. At the same time, because that pie is shrinking, over here, streaming and digital is growing. That's where the investment is. So when, you know, I look at moving forward in the next year, where I'm hiring people, where I'm focused, that's in streaming and digital. So I want to ask about streaming and digital, but back to the broadcast. So yeah. your assumption, your, your audience is 60-ish who's watching yeah. Yeah. Uh, World News tonight. Is your assumption that they are getting all this news for the first time when they're watching it? Do you think they are on the internet during the day and they've seen it, what do they want out of that broadcast that they're not getting somewhere else? I think all of us now, and, and, and there is research to show that, I, and it's just not coming to me, but right now most Americans get their first look at news and headlines from their phones, a push alert. Right. So I, I think that that is so even your 60 some year old 60 audience, something, you know, my mom is still, you know, she has her phone next to her more often than she's, you know, waiting for 630 to watch news. So when they come to us, it is sort of, 
you heard about it, but here's what really happened. So more context, more perspective. Um, and then our, that's what our reporters are there for, too. And here's what, you, what else happened. This is what happened in the hallway. You see them asking questions. And I always say to our employees that the questions that we ask are on behalf of the citizens we serve, right? So we have in mind our 60-something audience, but also our 20-something audience and also our 40-something audience. So you're asking questions from and, and, and all the different communities of America, right? So that's, that's one way to, to approach it. But on, I really do think that it's multifaceted now, right? So the information that we get, you know, the January 6th hearing happens. It's a seven or eight minute piece on World News Tonight. But we also do 30 second bites for TikTok and something for YouTube and something for, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Facebook. And we tweet out and we have live blogs because the idea is to use our brand to reach as many people as possible. I always say wherever they are, whenever they want us on whatever device. So, so that is a new approach to the way we approach news from the beginning of our day through. How do you think about reaching the audience that is actively tuning into you, whether it's on broadcast, on one of your streaming outlets, on cable, um, versus someone who's scrolling through TikTok, looking at Twitter, and you're now competing with a bunch of other stuff, other news outlets, funny cat videos, dancing videos, um, reaching an audience that might be receptive to what you have, but didn't come looking for it. How do you program for that versus someone who's coming to you? I think the price of admission is uh, that digital strategy. It really is that push alert, getting to people early. And then we have people who really are in tune with the way people are consuming news. And you really have to niche it out. <laughs> you really do. Um, because if you, you know, you can't put a TikTok on Facebook. You can't, you know what I mean? You can't put a push alert when, when you should be tweeting, you know, that kind of thing. So you just have to uh, really approach it with this multifaceted, multi-pronged ap approach and try to get there first. Breaking news to me is the price of admission. Because if we all know, when you look at your phone, you get a push alert, the first or the second, you know, you may see ABC News and then somebody else and then somebody, the lower you are on that list that comes on your phone, the less traction you're going to get on that story. But that's right? you have to have signed up for it to begin with. You got to say, bring this to me from yeah, ABC yeah, News. Yeah. If I'm just on TikTok, right. I'm not looking for news. How are you grabbing my attention? And, and maybe are you not even, I was talking with someone from ESPN. I just wrote a story about TikTok today. And uh, the guy who runs social for ESPN says, I'm not trying to do sports content on, on TikTok. I'm trying to expand that universe. And show, or I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing a highlights. I'm not giving you sports updates. Do you, how do you think about programming for, say, a TikTok audience where you guys have done well? Yeah, I just think it's it's the the brand. You know, ABC News is a strong news brand in America, so we are leveraging that brand on TikTok. So Ian Panel, who is covering the war in Ukraine right from the front lines, in addition to the reports that he's sending back for World News Tonight and Good Morning America, he's doing TikToks. You know, um, and they're interesting and different and customized for that audience. So as journalists, we're looking at our coverage in a different way. Do you think that audience on TikTok, which skews very young, who's mm -hmm. grown up digital, understands what ABC News is compared to any other news organization or just a random video they got that purports to be from the Ukraine? Do you I, think they understand that that I, means there's a news organization with, with reporters there? I think eventually they will. You know what I mean? I do think that that's part of educating them because my daughters who are 24 and 27, right, are not watching 
World News Tonight, David Muir on television ever. Mm -hmm. And so I know that. However, they are looking at TikTok and they are smart enough to know, you know, ABC News versus NBC News, CBS News versus, you know, uh, some outside entity. That well, your kids are any- older than mine, but also smarter because <laughs> mine are constantly like, I saw it on YouTube or TikTok yeah, and yeah. that's where it stops. That's They just saw it. So it must be true. Here we go to educating our kids. Yeah, I have, I have, in addition yeah. to my other job, I have to do that too. Um, <laughs> so what's your goal there for the, the if I'm not going to, so if, if I watch your news on broadcast, streaming, you can make money there. You can yeah. sell ads against my attention. On TikTok right now, you can't really for the most part. I'm just going to, one of the things I'm going to see there. Do you hope that eventually you're going to train me to come watch ABC on broadcast or streaming? Or do you think there's going to be a business there for you one day? I think there's going to be a business there for us one day. I mean, that's the way all of the uh, the bridges are leading, <laughs> to be honest. Um, you know, everything is getting smaller on linear, but maybe... Um, the newscast at some point will be, uh, you know, all, totally streamed like ABC News Live right now. Maybe that's where World News Tonight will eventually be. Maybe that's where Good Morning America will eventually be. I really think we're headed that way. All of the numbers show that. And right now, we just have to build that bridge. We have to build a bridge between, you know, the 60-something that's watching us and, you know, my daughters who are 20-something and not watching but are consumers of news there is a bridge, a pathway, I think, right now um, to connect the two. And maybe they meet in the middle somewhere eventually. You have a new boss, yeah. Dana Walden. Your old yes. boss got yes. fired <laughs> unceremoniously. I guess being fired is unceremoniously. Yeah. Does that change anything you do? Have you talked to Dana Walden about what she wants you to do? You know what? Um, the good thing for me is I have a great relationship with all three people involved, right? So Peter Rice hired me. Um, great relationship, been nothing but supportive, has been a great colleague. You know, that happens. Bob Chapik was also part of interviewing me. That's great the CEO relationship. Of Disney. The CEO of Disney. Great relationship. Has been nothing but supportive. And Dana Walden, I've only been there 14 months, right? Dana, from the moment I walked in, has been a, a, a great colleague. Kim, if you need anything, here's how you navigate the company. I've had dinner with her several times. So we have a great relationship. And, you know, our recent conversations have been, keep doing what you're doing. You know, I have a lot of things to do over here. Uh, and I have a lot to learn about news. Dana was never in our meetings, you know. Um, and so, but she's open to it. She's a great uh, uh, supporter of content. And uh, a great content. We just had a meeting before I came here and she was just talking about, you know, the great coverage that we've had on ABC News. So I'm really excited about working with her as well. Well, squeeze in one last question. You've been on the job for a year. Um, You are a woman of color. There are not a lot of people that look like you running big news operations. Do you feel like your identity places a burden or responsibility on you to change or modify both the output you guys put out? and or the people behind the scenes making that stuff? Yeah, I think, um, look, I'll take this moment in history. I really will with all that's going on in the world. It is a tremendous responsibility, um, but it's one that I embrace because I've spent my entire career waiting for this opportunity. And, you know, many people have paved the way for me to get here and I've worked my butt off, (laughs) uh, worked my butt off to get here. So I, uh, I think it is my responsibility, having sat in many seats where I was looked over, passed over, not seen, I understand what that feels like. And so I have an opportunity here to change that at ABC News. Our executive team is uh, diverse. It represents America. A lot of uh, executives, corporate America has said that can't be done. I love to put that 
PowerPoint up um, because it can be done if you take your time, if you, uh, you know, take the time to get to know people and take your time to hire the right people. And again, it's not tokenism or, you know, trying to check boxes. It's taking the time to find real people and making sure you have a great pool of candidates to choose from. And sometimes that takes more time than just picking your friend. We could do this for another 20 minutes, yeah, right? Yeah, we could. But we're out of time. <laughs> Kim Godwin, thank All you. Right. That was great. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thanks again to Kim Godwin, Chris Vest, and Zach Weinberg, and Jelani and Travis, who produced and edited the show, and our sponsors for bringing it to you for free, and you guys for listening and writing. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week. Even though it's a holiday, we will see you next week.